Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison, and I'll be your host as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. But first, I've got four administrative announcements for you. First of all, uh, if you haven't checked out our webinars yet, we are just winding up our, our initial webinars Wednesdays series. Uh, we released yesterday two new webinars, one featuring Scott Vincent, the former president of the Bend Police Association. Uh, Scott was instrumental in putting together a wildly successful uh, wellness program in conjunction with the Bend Police Department. Uh, this is a program that focuses not just on psychological or physical wellness, but on both of those, as well as other aspects of a public safety officer's life, financial wellness, for example. By pretty much any accounts, this wellness program has been a tremendous success. Uh, you've had a rapid increase in the number of applicants looking for work with the Bend Police Department, a decrease in turnover, an increase in morale, a reduction in workers' compensation claims. It just goes on and on. And Scott's just a joy to listen to uh, talking about this program. Also yesterday, we dropped uh, my webinar on body cameras, kind of all things body cameras. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of the evidence as to whether body cameras change police behavior or change behavior of those whom the police encounter? Uh, what are we seeing about the costs of body cameras, the new technology in body cameras, how courts are looking at body cameras? I, I try to cover all of that stuff uh, in, over the course of the webinar. We now have about 20 or so of those webinars that we have uh, in the bank, if you will. Again, just go to LRIS.com and, and check them out. They're a good learning experience, I think. Second announcement is we're about to resume our premium podcast series. Uh, these are the podcasts where every other week, every third Wednesday, uh, third Thursday, excuse me, I will interview somebody who's done something interesting in the public safety labor world. I don't care who they are. I mean, they can be representatives of labor or management. They can be lawyers. I've interviewed an arbitrator, a couple of professors. So long as they're interesting and they've got something cutting edge to talk about, I'd love to talk to them. Uh, and so kind of a homework assignment for you. Do you know of anybody you think would be good in an interview setup uh, for a podcast? Somebody that I could talk to, someone who has done something that is uh, kind of out of the normal and it's produced positive results. I'd love to talk to them. Just drop me a line, will at LRIS.com, and we will track them down. The third administrative announcement, uh, I can't tell you with what joy I say this, we're starting our live seminars again. Our first live seminar this year will be in May, uh, and it will be at the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas. The seminar will be on union leadership. We'll talk about you know everything from uh, how a union can safeguard its finances to the structure of a constitution and bylaws to uh, how you pick bargaining teams and what the nuts and bolts of bargaining are, how you prepare for disciplinary cases. 
uh, just what, what you need to know to effectively run a public safety union. We have uh, union leaders, uh, firefighters, and law enforcement officers from around the country who speak for us on these panels. This is not one where we have lawyers talking, at least not talking very much. Uh, and uh, the speakers that we have come from all sorts of backgrounds, large agencies, small agencies, East Coast, West Coast, binding arbitration, meet and confer. Uh, it's really gonna be a good time there in Las Vegas. Uh, and then we continue with our seminars one a month through the end of 2021. These will be the first seminars that we will have done in uh, over 15 months. And I'll tell you, uh, just speaking personally, I really miss them. And then the last administrative thing that I want to do, uh, this is going to seem a little bit unusual, and I've never done it before. I want to read you a short poem, and then I want to talk about a news article. This poem was written by Martin Niemöller. Uh, I'm certainly pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, he was a German Lutheran pastor. He, uh, he was born in 1892 and died in uh, 1984. And he wrote a self-reflective poem about cowardice. It's only about six lines long. Let me read it to you. I think you'll recognize it. Maybe not with these words, but you'll recognize it. First, they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I was reminded of this poem when I read a news article in our local paper, The Oregonian, uh, last week. Uh, it's about a piece of legislation that was introduced by our Speaker of the House, Tina Kotek is her name. Uh, and to set the stage for this, uh, in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of police reform legislation that has been introduced in the legislature. Some of it has made it through. Uh, some of it is pretty dreadful in terms of its impact on binding arbitration. And it squarely targets police officers and only police officers. When that legislation has been considered, it's pretty much been the police union standing alone. Uh, and the teachers union and AFSCME and SEIU, the other big AFL-CIO unions, they've been on the sidelines. They haven't been in there pitching on behalf of the police unions. I think you know where this is going, right? So what would this bill that was introduced last week do? This is a bill that would allow school districts to retain educators of color on a layoff, if doing so helped maintain the school's ratio of teacher diversity. This bill would also allow school administrators to retain educators who have, and this is not a term that's defined in the bill, quote, more merit, end quote, than those who would otherwise qualify. So who's going to be pushed out by this bill? Uh, if, in fact, this bill passes, it's going to be senior employees, right? This is a straight-on attack on the principle of seniority. 
and not just the principle of seniority in the abstract, but in its most intimate form, whether layoffs are done in the inverse order of seniority. And when I read that article, uh, it, it made me think immediately about Niemöller's poem. And it made me wonder, what are we going to see now from the AFL-CIO unions? What are we going to see from AFSCME and SEIU and the Oregon Teachers Association or the Oregon Education Association? Are they going to knock on the door of the police unions and say something like, to quote from another phrase, uh, folks, we must hang together or surely we will hang separately? Are they going to say something like that? Or are they going to continue to have their heads in the sand and not understand that an attack on police unions and the rights of police unions to negotiate over certain topics will not end up with an attack on them? Are they going to continue to pretend that? And if they are, we may be looking at a pivotal moment in the public safety labor movement. The first case I want to talk about arises out of a tragic situation that happened uh, many years ago in 2016 in Wilmington, Delaware. And it, it really sets up an issue that I don't think we really consider as much as we should. Under what circumstances will the employer's behavior be so out of keeping with the standards that we would expect from a reasonable employer that employees can directly sue the employer for the harm that is caused by the behavior. Now, uh, every state has a workers' compensation system and there, uh, there's a grand bargain to any workers' compensation system. That grand bargain is employees give up the right to sue their employers in exchange for the no-fault nature of workers' compensation. In a workers' compensation claim, the employer cannot allege as a defense the contributory negligence of the employee who was injured on the job. So you get the benefits of the workers' compensation system if you're an employee, but the trade-off is you can't sue your employer. And every once in a while, uh, you will see employees who try to bring lawsuits against their employer for accidents. We're talking about accidents here. We're not talking about employment-type claims like Title VII discrimination claims and the like. You'll see employees who attempt to sue their employer for an accident, and uh, they get hit right over the head with what's known as the workers' compensation bar. Employees are barred from suing their employers as part of the entire workers' compensation system. You'll see employees come up with a novel and different theories. Almost always those cases are unsuccessful. And that's what happened in the Wilmington case. So let me tell you a little bit about it. Let me tell you the theory that the uh, firefighters came up with and let me tell you what the court did with that theory. So as I mentioned, uh, this all came out of a fire, a house fire, uh, that occurred in September uh, 2016. Uh, three firefighters perished in the house fire and three others 
were badly injured in the same fire. Uh, the three injured firefighters, uh, Brad Speakman, Terrence Tate, and Joan Cathray, joined with the survivors and the estates of the three deceased firefighters, Christopher Leach, Jerry Fix, and Ardrith Hope. And they filed a lawsuit against the city. And at the heart of the lawsuit was what was known as, or what are known as, substantive due process claims. Now, we think of the due process clause, or clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, we think of them as requiring certain procedures. Uh, for example, before a property right is taken away from someone, there must be a, a, a pre-deprivation hearing. That's what the Loudermill case is all about. We think of the due process clauses requiring whatever these procedures might be, notice, a hearing, uh, that sort of thing. But there is another sliver of the due process clause that is out there, or clauses that are out there, and that is the notion of substantive due process. The idea that a governmental body can act so far beyond the pale of what reasonable conduct might be that its very actions violate the due process rights of third parties or in this case, the due process rights of the six firefighters. And the types of substantive due process claims that were raised by the firefighters in this case was what's known as a state-created danger claim, that the employer, through conduct of its own, created the danger that took the lives and seriously injured uh, other firefighters. Uh, the uh, the claim was that the behavior of the city shocked the conscience of the court, and therefore the firefighters should be able to recover. What was at the heart of it? Uh, what, what was at the heart of it was that the legislative branch of the city of Wilmington, in other words, the Wilmington City Council, which is what they were talking about, uh, actually funded staffing levels and funded equipment at higher levels than the mayor ended up actually allocating. So there was a dispute between the mayor and the city council and it resulted with the mayor not expending the funds that had been already budgeted for additional firefighters and additional equipment. And uh, the way the firefighters presented this claim uh, was that it concerned, and I'm quoting, what happens when the executive branch refuses to execute and abide by statutory resource allocation and workplace safety decisions. And the Federal Court of Appeals, this is the uh, Third Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, rejected the lawsuit. And why? Uh, and, and you'll see here the tremendous, tremendous reluctance of courts to entertain these sorts of uh, substantive due process claims. I'm quoting, we acknowledge that the separation of legislative, executive, and judicial powers has played a critical role in our history. However, the firefighters are attempting to rely on the separation of powers between the different branches of a local government chartered under state law 
in order to bring a federal court action asserting substantive due process claims the firefighters do not identify any cases allowing these types of claims and they certainly do not cite any case law based on the alleged refusal of the public employers executive officials to execute funding decisions and directives adopted by the employers legislative body the court ends with a note that is I suspect faint comfort to any of the families of the firefighters who perished or the families or the firefighters who were seriously injured here's how the court ends its opinion we recognize that this case involves a tragedy and we express no opinion as to whether plaintiffs may have any remedies under Delaware law give me a break you know they don't have any remedies under Delaware law that's what the workers compensation bar is all about I've always thought that court should simply save the phony sympathy for another day when they're rendering an opinion like this at any rate the court dismisses the lawsuit and that means the only remedies that these families and these firefighters have are those through the workers compensation or pension system next up Illinois Illinois may be a lab rat for the rest of the country right now on a particular labor issue we're seeing this spate of cases come out of Illinois about the public policy doctrine cases that have me scratching my head and wondering is this going to bring about a radical and nationwide change in the public policy doctrine okay what's the public policy doctrine if you have an arbitration clause in your collective bargaining agreement or MOU chances are it says that arbitration is final and binding and almost always final and binding means just that you get the arbitrators decision there is no basis for appeal you have with your contract in your case your contract is your collective bargaining agreement or MOU you have substituted a different form of dispute resolution binding arbitration for that that you would otherwise have available going to court and courts will look at you and say hey if you agreed to binding arbitration that's it you're stuck there are a couple of minor exceptions and the one that I want to talk about right now is what's known as the public policy doctrine and this is a doctrine that was first established by the US Supreme Court in a case in 1983 and as you see the doctrine most often expressed now a court can overturn an arbitrators decision if it finds the decision violates a and I'm going to quote this because this is a very common phrase you see it in most of these opinions if the court finds that the decision violates a quote well-defined and dominant end quote public policy based in quote laws and legal precedent and not merely notions of public interest so what we've seen over the years in these public policy cases is courts looking to see whether the arbitrators opinion violates something something specific something that is in a statutory scheme or maybe 
very, very rarely in a court's opinion. Most often you're looking for a statute. And courts have been very clear about this. We're not looking for a statute that talks about the underlying conduct of the employees. We're talking about a statute that prohibits the remedy that the arbitrator has imposed. And most often we see this discussion in termination cases. In termination cases where the employee's conduct may be quite aberrant and everybody agrees is a violation of the rules. Uh, but the arbitrator, for whatever reason, puts the employee back to work. Maybe it's a long-time employee, first offense. Maybe there's mitigating circumstances where the employee was undergoing some sort of physical or psych psychological disability. Whatever reason it might be, the arbitrator puts the person back to work, even though the misconduct is very often uh, admitted. And we see employers challenging those uh, decisions, those sorts of decisions on public policy grounds, and they have virtually always lost those challenges. And the reason is, is that when they point to public policy, typical case, police officer uses excessive force. When these, uh, when the advocates in these cases point to the public policy, they will say, it's against public policy to use excessive force. And the courts will say, well, yeah, Everybody knows that, but that's not the public policy question. The public policy question focuses on the arbitrator's remedy. Is there something in the statutory scheme of our state that says that a police officer who uses excessive force can only be fired and that other forms of discipline, lengthy suspensions, transfers, demotions, uh, are not acceptable. And of course, there are no such statutes, or virtually no such statutes, uh, anywhere in the country. And that's why employers' arguments about the public policy doctrine, that's why they have failed, is because while the employee's conduct may be against public policy, the arbitrator's remedial decision, putting the person back to work, can't be said to also be against public policy. So what are we seeing in Illinois right now? We are seeing lower courts, and I'm gonna give you an example of three cases, uh, two of which involve trial courts, uh, and one of which involves the Court of Appeals. Normally with trial courts, I wouldn't even be uh, issuing something about a, or talking about a trial court decision on a podcast because trial court judges can and, and will do anything. Uh, they may see only one labor case in their entire career, uh, and who knows what you're going to get. But we also have a Court of Appeals decision here, a court that should know better. Uh, and all three are taking the same approach. So what are these cases? Uh, the first one involves a fire paramedic uh, with the city of Chicago, a fellow named uh, James Gray, a longtime employee who's been a paramedic with the city of Chicago for 18 years. Uh, this case involved uh, Gray's co-workers who complained that on, least at a, on at least four occasions over a three-year span, 2016 through 2018, they encountered Gray watching pornography and or masturbating while on duty at work. 
One of these incidents, one that occurred in June of 2017, uh, happened when Gray's co-worker saw him watching pornography and masturbating in the side yard of the firehouse with his genitals exposed, although the court takes pains to say, though otherwise clad in uniform. Thank you. Uh, Gray himself admitted to viewing pornography on the firehouse premises, uh, touching himself. He described it as scratching, rubbing, and itching while watching pornography uh, on the firehouse patio and workbench area, even exposing his genitals on duty. City fire, that's not unexpected, right? Uh, maybe unexpected that the union took the case to arbitration. I mean, after all, the complainants here are all union members, but they took it to arbitration and it went to uh, one of the most experienced arbitrators in the country, comma, ever. A guy named George Rumel is an arbitrator uh, out of Michigan. Rumel has been deciding cases for a long, long time, and he's viewed as an outstanding arbitrator who uh, thoroughly understands uh, labor relations. Rommel hears the case, and he orders Gray's reinstatement. Uh, he relies on Gray's work record, his admission of fault, his voluntary decision to seek counseling, and that no member of the public witnessed the conduct. Uh, Rommel ordered Gray reinstated without back pay, so a suspension that was worth tens of thousands of dollars. City challenges the decision in the trial court, and uh, the trial court judge overturns the arbitrator's opinion. Now listen to what this judge does with the public policy uh, uh, argument, which is the argument that the city makes. Uh, and I'm gonna intersperse the judge with my own observations. The judge says, there is an identifiable, well-defined, and dominant public policy against sexual harassment in the workplace. Yes, he's right. There absolutely is. Number two, the city and Chicago Fire Department, in line with federal, state, and local policies, have established their own policies against sexual harassment. Yes, they have. You still haven't said anything that justifies overturning this arbitrator's opinion, but... Yeah, there are policies against sexual harassment. Third, such decision violates public policy insofar as it would force the city to violate laws and policies that exist on a federal, state, local, and citywide level against sexual harassment in the workplace. Wrong, wrong, wrong. There is nothing in any federal, state, local, or citywide policy that I can find, or certainly at the federal or state level that exists, that requires an employer to fire an employee who is guilty of sexual harassment. And in fact, the law is precisely to the contrary. Court after court after court has held that so long as the employer takes remedial action and the form of remedial action is meaningful, that the employer will have the latitude to choose what that remedial action will be. 
there are plenty of cases where the victim of sexual harassment sues the employer saying they should have fired him and the court's answer is something like they suspended him that's good enough the employer gets to choose the form of remedial action and then the arbitrator ends up with this sentence that I look at and I don't know it's kind of like you're looking at a cartoon remember those old cartoons where someone's eyes kind of bug out of their heads here's what the arbitrator said hold on to your eyes the arbitrator's decision to essentially impose no discipline and to reinstate gray with full seniority is incongruous with the dominant public policy against sexual harassment in the workplace excuse me impose no suspension or no impose no discipline gray was suspended and reinstated without back pay i once had an arbitration opinion where an arbitrator overturned a uh, a termination of a police officer there were a lot of expert witnesses on the other side who were testifying about the harm that was done by the officer's conduct in the community and in the police department the arbitrator was thoroughly unimpressed and i remember this sentence in the arbitrator's opinion he said i, I doubt whether any of the city's high-priced expert witnesses ever really had to work for a living for a single day in their lives when i read that sentence about how reinstatement without back pay is the equivalent of no discipline that reminded me of that arbitrator's comment okay so that's that's one case that's a trial court decision here's a second trial court decision all these cases by the way within a about three four weeks of each other and i i think my friends uh in illinois uh, lawyers have sent the these opinions to me uh, and by the way, I ask all of you, if you get an opinion of any sort, uh, send it on in. Uh, we collect these things as much as we can. So this next case involves a sergeant. Her name is Sarah Klingel of the Yorkville, Illinois Police Department. She was fired for 10 policy violations. Get ready, I'm going to read them quickly. Arresting a suspect without justification, failure to report inappropriate conduct to her supervisors, conduct violations related to her supervisory responsibilities, interfering with an investigation, failing to comply with directives from the chief of police, conduct having a tendency to destroy public respect and confidence, violating a conduct rule concerning moral efficiency, image, and public confidence violating a policy rule concerning efficiency image and uh public oh, they cited that one twice i'm sorry violation of the law enforcement officers code of ethics and conduct with the tendency to defy public trust oh my you don't know from the arbitrator's opinion what she's alleged to have done but it must have been a doozy right the arbitrator uh, who's looking at her termination found that the city had proved each of the violations, but concluded that uh, termination was too severe a punishment, reduced her termination to 120 days suspension. So a four month suspension, and you know, again, we're in the tens of thousands of dollars of a penalty here. Uh, the employer challenges this, the decision, 
and challenges it on public policy grounds and listen to what this arbitrator done and it did excuse me getting a little beyond myself here this arbitrator says there's a public policy here that this arbitrator's opinion overturns what is it it's the public policy of quote effective law enforcement the trial court finds that quote in order for the city to meet its statutory obligation to effectively investigate crimes and enforce the Illinois criminal code it must rely on its supervising police officers who are tasked with overseeing compliance with police policies and procedures there can be no question that this is a well-defined dominant public policy that is ascertainable by more than just generalized considerations of supposed public interest okay yeah there's a policy of effective law enforcement I think everybody can say that I'm not sure it's well defined I'm not sure it's dominant but there's a public policy but what about the real issue does the arbitrator's order of reinstatement violate that public policy here's what the trial court says the arbitrator's decision to reinstate the officer despite the decision of the chief of police the termination was warranted sends a message to the public that police departments must continue to employ officers guilty of misconduct even when they interfere with the resulting investigation the public deserves to have confidence that our officers will investigate their own misconduct to the same extent they investigate the misconduct of others wrong 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 there is nothing in that public policy that says that an officer who for whatever reason has done something that is not effective law enforcement officers effective law enforcement must be fired and that that is the only possible disciplinary sanction why can't you say that a four-month suspension a fine of tens of thousands of dollars doesn't also meet the public policy of effective law enforcement this is a court that is getting it wrong in precisely the same way that the previous court got it wrong now let's wind up with the Court of Appeals opinion this is one that involves the city of Country Club Hills and a police officer by the name of Derek Charles what was uh, Charles fired for he was fired for lying in the course of an investigation into a detainee who escaped and he was also fired for um, I love this phrase malingering overnight in a deserted parking lot an arbitrator orders the reinstatement of Charles he finds him not guilty of dishonesty uh, and he finds him just uh, you know he simply did not write an adequate re report uh, and he also found that the city had failed to prove the malingering charge well that one's pretty easy right uh, I mean this is an arbitrator who concludes that the most important charge against the employee the charge of dishonesty is not proven in a two-to-one decision the Illinois Court of Appeals overturns the arbitrator's reinstatement order and the court starts 
by disagreeing with the arbitrator's factual conclusions that Charles, in fact, had not been intentionally dishonest. And here's what the court holds. While we recognize that not every violation of a department rule should warrant discharge, there is substantial authority supporting the proposition that dishonesty of a police officer regarding his official duties should warrant discharge and is inimical to the sound operation of a department. Courts have recognized that keeping dishonest police officers on the force creates liability issues for the department. Pardon me for repeating myself, but wrong, wrong, wrong. First of all, a court has no business reinterpreting or reevaluating the factual findings of an arbitrator. Ever since we've had final and binding arbitration, the Supreme Court has held that courts are bound by the factual findings of arbitrators. You can go back to the Steelworkers Trilogy from the U.S. Supreme Court in the early 1960s, where the court says, and says so repeatedly, it is the arbitrator's job to determine the facts. And it may be that a court fundamentally disagrees with how the arbitrator found the facts, but that is no basis to overturn the arbitrator's opinion. So that is wrong. The whole notion that the court is reevaluating whether or not Charles was untruthful, the court just simply cannot do that, should not do that. And then the second half of what the court said is just as wrong. Sure, there's a public policy against dishonest police officers, but is there something in that public policy that says that if an officer is dishonest, if we are to assume in this case that the court can actually overturn the findings of the arbitrator on whether Charles was dishonest, is there something in that public policy that says that the only thing an employer can do with a dishonest police officer is fire them? No. There's court opinions from all over the country, including a very seminal court opinion from the Washington Supreme Court in a case involving Kitsap County, where the court says, that's not what our laws say. That's not what the Brady Doctrine says. An employer gets the choice of a disciplinary penalty. And so long as that penalty is anywhere in the range of reason, we do not have any business overturning the penalty on public policy grounds. Unless we can find something explicit in a state statute saying that if the employee engages in misconduct A, termination and only termination can result. I will say there is sort of a bright light in all this, in that there is a dissenting judge. I said this is a two-to-one opinion of the Court of Appeals. And the dissenting judge, much more diplomatically than I just said it, he didn't say wrong, 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 I'll confess. Here's what he says. 
Unlike the majority, I conclude the arbitrator's decision did not run afoul of public policy simply because he levied a sanction which was less than termination. It was a sanction which in the arbitrator's judgment was appropriate for the offense. To find otherwise would be to conclude that termination is the only sanction allowable or possible under the facts of this case. There is no support in the record or the law for such a conclusion. So what happens when you have what looks to be a little bit of a movement here on the whole issue of public policy in Illinois? Well, the Illinois Supreme Court, which has its own public policy decisions out there, clearly is going to have to step in. But when I saw these opinions, it made me reflect a little bit on arbitrator's opinions that I've been reading in the last nine months. And I've got to say, I think they're changing a little bit. We are seeing arbitrators uphold discipline in police cases. I haven't seen it in fire cases yet. In police cases and in corrections cases, where I don't think that would have been the result pre-George Floyd. I think arbitrators are reacting consciously or unconsciously to the police reform efforts move to try to get at the binding nature of arbitration or the very existence of arbitration itself. We'll see. It's early yet. You know, I'm only looking at a few dozen opinions. We'll see. But that could well be a trend. I want to wind up this month's podcast with the rarest of birds, if you will, a social media lawsuit brought by a law enforcement officer who had been disciplined where the lawsuit was not immediately thrown out of court. Public safety employees have not had a good track record challenging discipline for social media posts, particularly social media posts that have anything to do with violence. And so this was unusual to see this decision, even more unusual to see it come out of a federal court of appeals. So what's the case about? This is a case about Charles Moser. And Charles is a sniper with the SWAT team for the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Las Vegas and Clark County have a combined city-county police department that's known as Metro. Moser had a Facebook account, and he commented that a suspect who had shot a police officer, that it was a shame that the suspect didn't have any, quote, holes in him, end quote. The department reacted by removing him from the SWAT team, and Moser sued. And he alleged violation of his First Amendment rights. And he argued that his comment, shame that the suspect didn't have any holes in him, suggested only that the officer should have fired defensive shots. A federal trial court disagreed with Moser's interpretation of his own statement, rejected the lawsuit, and the case ended up before the federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the court's opinion starts with very unusual three sentences. And when you see a court's opinion start like this, you know you are in for an interesting ride. Here are the three sentences. Social media has allowed Americans to connect with friends in far-flung places, 
and to share their opinions on topics both mundane and momentous. But social media can also tempt people to impulsively make inflammatory comments that they later regret. And even worse for them, employers often react by firing or punishing them for their ill-advised remarks. So, you know, we're going in for quite a journey uh, in this case through social media. And in fact, the court does a very good job of taking apart many of the arguments you commonly see in these social media cases. We'll post this decision uh, on our website linked uh, to this podcast so you can take a look at it. I really commend it. It's not that long in opinion, and I think it's set out very well. Uh, and the court says, look, there's a problem here with dismissing this lawsuit at this stage of the proceedings. We haven't had a trial or anything like that. Um, and we have a fundamental disagreement. What did Moser's statement mean? Metro thinks Moser's comment advocated the unlawful use of deadly force. Uh, and the way Metro sees it, when Moser is saying the suspect should have had holes in him, what he's saying is that the officers who captured the suspect should have shot him in retaliation for his earlier shooting of a police officer. Moser, on the other hand, had a different take on his statement. Uh, he said that he was only implying that the officer who had been ambushed by the suspect, not the one who arrested the suspect, should have fired defensive shots. Uh, so in other words, Moser is saying, I'm not advocating unlawful violence, but rather frustration, as the court puts it, in an admittedly hyperbolic and inappropriate manner, at the perils of police officers being struck down in the line of duty. And the court says, that's a factual issue. And you know what? That's what we have trials to resolve, whether or not the plaintiff or the defendant is able to prove their case from a factual standpoint. And so we need to send this case back down for trial. But first, we've got to deal with a couple of Metro's arguments. Metro says, the court recounts, that there shouldn't be a trial in this case because Moser's Facebook comment caused disruption in the workplace. And in fact, there is a line of cases, and this goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, that hold that if a, uh, a public statement, whether it's on social media or some other form of speech, by a public employee causes undue disruption in the workplace, that can be the basis for discipline. And so Metro is saying here, that's what Moser's statement did. It caused disruption in the workplace. And the court says, well, you know, you haven't proved that. And maybe you can a trial, but you haven't proved it yet. Because as far as we see from the record, there was no media coverage of Moser's comment. It doesn't appear anybody other than the anonymous tips, tipster, one of Moser's Facebook friends, uh, even saw the Facebook comment. Moser took the Facebook comment down within a couple of months, and nobody would have known that Moser was a SWAT sniper uh, from looking at his Facebook page. No one would have had any idea. Uh, so, you know, you, you may be able to show disruption, Metro, says the court, but you're going to have to do it when you go back down and have a trial. 
And then Metro has one more argument, one last argument. Metro is saying, look, we're going to face civil liability because of Moser's comments. How? Metro says that if Moser shoots someone in the future, the shooting will lead to a lawsuit, that Moser's deleted Facebook comment would somehow be discovered, and that the trial judge would admit that comment in evidence, and then that the jury would rely on the Facebook comment to find Metro liable. How does the court deal with that? Wasn't impressed. One sentence. Quote, Metro has cited no case in which such a long chain of speculative inferences tipped the balancing test in the government's favor. And so the court sends the case back down to trial. Um, interesting opinion. Uh, no one should take this as any license to post anything you want on social media, please. Uh, we are seeing public safety employees, firefighters, corrections officers, police officers lose their jobs every week for things they have published on social media. We can't seem to get this message across. So the fact that we have one court opinion that sends a case back down for trial on the merits that may be won or lost by the officer in question, no one should take a great deal of heart about that. But it's still a pretty interesting case. Well, with that, that's the end of the March 2021 edition of First Thursday. Thank you for joining me. I hope you know, you're back with us in April with a new edition of First Thursday. And we certainly hope to see you in person at one of these seminars we're going to be doing. All of them uh, this year will be at the Luxor, except we're going to have one in Nashville later in the year. Check at LRIS.com for our schedule. Certainly hope to see you at one of those seminars and, and, uh, and hopefully uh, social distancing is, is enough a thing of the past that we can actually gather and have a conversation, I hope. With that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.